morning. I wonder if you could turn to John chapter 13, the Gospel of John and chapter 13, and we're going we're to take a little time to read the whole of this chapter. John chapter 13, reading from verse 1. Before we turn to God's word, let's just come before the Lord in prayer. Eternal Heavenly Father, we want to, as we enter into your presence, Father, this morning, and as we come before your throne, Father, we want to acknowledge you as a God who is sovereign. We want to acknowledge you as an almighty God. We want to acknowledge you as a God who who holds this very universe, the heavens, in the very palm of your hand. But yet, Father, we thank you and praise you that you're also a God who loves us. You're a God who has has loved us so much that you demonstrated that love. You, You manifested that love in the sending of your own and precious Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you. We thank you, Father, from the bottom of our heart, Father, that he came from heaven's glory and came into this sin cursed earth. And indeed, the Word did become flesh and did dwell among us. And indeed, the Lord went on to that cross and paid for our sins in full. Father, we thank you that we are alive in Christ this morning. We thank you, Father, that we are justified by faith. We thank you, Father, that all of our sins are forgiven. And as we come before you, we come clothed in the righteousness of Christ, accepted in the Beloved. Father, we know we have a a living hope and a future hope that is in glory. Father, we have the assurance of salvation this morning. And yet, Father, we are on a journey of faith. You teach us, you instruct us, you lead us and you guide us. So, Father, this morning as we open your word, as we reflect on our journey of faith, as we reflect on the spiritual battles that each and every one of us go through every day, Father, we pray that you would give us that word, you would give us that instruction, you would give us that encouragement, Father, this morning by your Spirit. So that we as your people, indeed, our hearts would be changed. And indeed that that would be seen on Monday, on Tuesday, on Wednesday, in the week ahead. For your glory and for your glory alone. So Father, we pray that everything that is said be in accordance with your word and your will. And above all, Father, as has already been prayed, we pray, Father, that you would be given the glory in it all. And we pray these things in the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. John chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And supper being ended, the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going to God rose from supper and laid aside his garments, took a towel and girded himself. After that he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Then he came to Simon Peter and Peter said to him, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but you will know after this. Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Simon Peter said, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. 
for he knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, you are not all clean. In verse 12, so when he had washed their feet, taken his garments and sat down again, he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and, and you say, well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture might be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives, uh, whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What do you do? What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, Buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. And so when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, And God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you shall follow me afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for your sake. Jesus answered him, will you lay down your life for my sake? Most assuredly, I say to you, the rooster shall not crow till you have denied me three times. And finish reading at the end of chapter 13. This passage that we have just read is an account, chapter 13, is an account of a very dark time for Jesus and his disciples. We read in verse 1 that it says this, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father. In verse 3, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God, and was going to God. Jesus is about to be betrayed. He is about to be arrested. He is about to be put on trial. He is about to be beaten, physically abused, and and then to go on to the cross at Calvary. Jesus is about to face physical anguish that is beyond human comprehension. To get a 
a glimpse, a, a sense, a little sense of the physical anguish that Jesus would endure. You don't need to turn to it, but in Isaiah 52, a, a very well-known passage that prophesies what the Lord would go through, says this, and I'm reading from the NIV version, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. And his form marred beyond human likeness. You couldn't even recognize Jesus. The physical punishment, the physical abuse that Jesus would endure leading up to the cross and on the cross, the Lord was unrecognizable. And when you take a step back and reflect that this is the God of the of the universe, this is our Creator God, His face, His appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being. The Lord was going to endure a physical anguish that was beyond any human comprehension. And yes, others would face beating and others would face crucifixion, but Jesus would endure something infinitely greater, a suffering that goes beyond physical suffering. Jesus was going to go onto the cross and face the spiritual anguish when the Father poured His wrath upon the Lord Jesus Christ in your place and in mine. The Lord was going to go to the cross to face the unthinkable physical anguish of crucifixion. But infinitely greater, He was going to face that spiritual anguish where the Father turned from the Son and poured His wrath upon Him, where the Lord would bear our sins on the cross. He was without sin, but He took our sins. He took the punishment that we deserved, and He took it all on the cross at Calvary. The spiritual anguish that was awaiting Him. And the disciples too, in this dark hour, were soon going to face persecution themselves. As they identified with the Lord Jesus Christ, as they identified with the one who suffered for them, as they identified with Christ in his sufferings, they too were going to face persecution. And we'll read about that in Acts. The disciples were going to face troubles too. We're going to face persecution because as we know, when you progress the gospel, two things will always happen. It will happen in this church and it will happen in any church. It always happens. Two things happen when you progress the gospel. One, sinners are saved. And two, the saints are persecuted. And as the, 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 the disciples would go out and fulfill the Great Commission, sinners were saved. Many were added to the church. But they faced persecution. And so persecution is ahead of them. And added to that, one from among them. Not one from outside the camp, but one from among them would betray them. Think about what that would have been like. Think about the experience of that, the reality of that. One who you ministered with, one who you journeyed with, would betray you. Judas was going to betray Jesus. And added to that in this dark hour, we're reminded also that Peter, yes Peter, would deny the Lord three times when the Lord really needed him. Peter would deny him. 
And you know, this passage reminds us, doesn't it, when we think about Jesus about to go to the cross and all that he would have to endure, when we see of Judas and his betrayal, Peter and his denial, and how Satan was right in there, into Judas, it reminds us of the reality that the Christian life is spiritual warfare. That's what chapter 13 reminds us. It reminds us that it's a battle. It's a battle with the world. It's a battle with Satan. It is spiritual warfare for us and for the church. And all of us are going through that spiritual battle, that spiritual warfare. It's not something that others face. It's not something that from time to time you might face. It's something that we face day in, day out. We are in a spiritual battle. And chapter 13 is a, is a reminder of that spiritual battle that we are all in. And how do we respond to that spiritual battle that we're in? How do we respond to the, the world in which we're living in today, this increasingly secular world, this increasingly uh, a world that is hostile towards Christianity? And you can see that hostility growing, can't you? There was a time, if you, well, many will remember back in the 70s, when there was a kind of a reverence towards Christianity, even amongst those who are not saved. Then there was a kind of an indifference towards Christianity, as I observed, for what it's worth. Then there was a kind of a dislike for Christianity. And now there is a hatred towards Christianity. I might have said this before, but I remember preaching in Tandagee Baptist, and there was a lady who had come over from England, and I was shaking hands at the door, and she was just talking about the state, the spiritual state of England. And she said something that I'll never forget, and it really haunted me. She said this, In England... They don't know God, but they hate Him. I've never heard anything so disturbing. They don't know God, but they hate Him. We live in a world that is hostile. Satan is getting through with so many different mechanisms and strategies. Therefore, as God's people, how do we respond to the spiritual warfare? How do we respond to the troubles of today? Well, amazingly, in this dark hour, in this dark passage, the Lord gives us many spiritual lessons, many lessons in ministry, many lessons on how we are to live out the Christian life. The first lesson the Lord gives us is in verse 1. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. How do we respond to the spiritual warfare that we're in? Remember brothers and sisters, that God loves you. Remember that God loves you. I wonder how you've responded to me saying that, even as a Christian. Somewhere in your heart are you saying, well, I know that, Philip. (laughs) I hear that all the time. And that's great. I know that. But get on to the other point. I want to hear something different. I want to hear something new. God loves me. I know that. It's great. But move on to the next point. Have we become, as God's people, have I become a little indifferent to the reality that God loves us? Have we become, a bit, is it kind of like almost water off a duck's back? We've heard it so many times, we, 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 we've read it so many times, we've listened to it so many times, that, that it just, it just, it's not doing anything to us anymore. We've lost the awe of God. We've lost the wonder of our salvation. We've lost the incredibleness that God loves us. Even while we are yet sinners, He loves us. We are unrighteous. We are sinners. We are weak. We are fallen. 
even in the last hour, we have sinned in one way or another, and yet God loves us. Have we lost the awe of that? And if it was kind of just went over your head, or just, yeah, I know that, Philip, then maybe, maybe we have lost that awe. Maybe we've lost the awesomeness of God's love for us. And as God's people, we need to, we need to pray that, that we get that back. That, that every day we're just rejoicing in the Lord that, that God loves us. And remember, whatever you face in the week ahead, that's your go-to reflection. That's your go-to truth. Whatever you face, whether you're in the valleys or whether you're the hilltop experiences, always remember that God loves you. Your go-to reflection, your go-to truth, your go-to source of encouragement. And if God loves us, we ought to love one another. And you might say, well, Philip, that's easy. I can, I can love. I can love 80% of the people here. That's straightforward enough. I can love the lovable. I can love the likable. But God isn't saying just love the lovable and love the likable. He's saying love everybody. Love everyone. And it's not, it's not something you just, it, it's something I think you've got to determine in your heart to do that. Because some people you'll naturally warm to. Some people maybe you'll have a bit of a history with. And that they're difficult to love. Some people you just don't know. But what God is saying, determine in your heart that as everybody you look around in this room loves them all. As God has loved us. We ought to love one another. A fellowship that loves one another, Satan will not get a foothold. Will not get a foothold. But Satan got in there in chapter 13. But if we love one another, then indeed we will be united together in the Lord. And you know, sometimes we, we sometimes, I, I, and I'm speaking from, from a ministry point of view, a leadership point of view, in my own experience, sometimes, you know, in church life we make things so complicated. You know? What do you do with somebody in a church who's divisive? We spend weeks working out how to deal with that person. The answer is two words. Love them. What do we do with the difficult person in the church? That's a, that must be a different matter, Philip. A, a difficult, a difficult guy or that difficult woman or that difficult family. What, what do you do with them? We need to put a strategy in place. We need to turn up every night and figure out what to do with that. Love them. Love them. What, what, what do we do with somebody who's, who's been drawn away from their faith and, and, are, and are caught up in the world? What do we do with that person? Love them. Love them. That's the answer. Not in some emotive, sentimental way. Not in the way that the world loves, but in, in, in a true biblical sense we love them. Love in action. In other words, some, that love might lead you to encourage somebody, to strengthen somebody. It might lead you to endure with somebody and persevere with somebody. It may lead you to rebuke somebody. That's a love act. Rebuking them. Challenging them. Instructing them. Maybe even disciplining them. You may say, oh, disciplining, that's not a love act, Philip. That's a self-righteous act. That's not a love act. That, that, You've tipped over there the balance. Discipline is not a love act. That's a self-righteous, sanctimonious act of a church and should never be done. No, discipline is a love act. If somebody's caught up in sin, if somebody is caught up in willful and unrepentant and continuous sin and they are heading down the wrong direction that could possibly lead them to be disqualified, 
is it not a love act? If after they have been admonished several times that they are disciplined so that they will recognize their sin and bring them to repentance and full restoration with the Lord and the fellowship. Is that not a love act? And so as God's people, we need to respond in love. Love and action. Knowing that God loves us, we ought to love one another. Sometimes encouraging, sometimes strengthening, sometimes even rebuking and challenging, which is not easy to do or not easy to receive. But yet, if you really love one another, that's what you'll do as God has loved us. And if you doubt God's love, which even as Christians sometimes we do, not that we love, we doubt that God can love, we just doubt whether He loves us. As you look at your own heart and your life, as I often do, well when you doubt, you don't need to turn to it, but turn to it in your own time. 1 John 4 verse 7 where the Lord says, Beloved, let us love one another for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Verse 9. In this, the love of God was manifested towards us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Doubting God's love, turn to the cross. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and see the manifestation of God's love in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is love? What is the definition of love? It's amazing how when you ask people what the definition of love is, how people just never get this word. In church life, you'll get it. But I would do leadership talks in, in different businesses and things, and I talk about you know how, you, how you're to treat your staff, and I use the word love. And of course, people are, what? Um, and I say, well, what's the definition of love? And every word comes up on a definition of love, and they never, ever get it. And then ultimately I come to the final word, which is sacrifice. That's love. You want to know how much somebody loves you? They might have sacrificed they're prepared to make for you. And so if we want to know the love of God, look at the sacrifice of the Lord on the cross. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves us. That's how much he loves the church. The second lesson that Jesus gives us is an incredible lesson in both leadership and in church life. We are to serve one another. Verse 5 it, after that, he poured water into a basin. The Lord poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel with which he was girded. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed need only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. Again, perhaps I, maybe I'm the only one, but maybe some others, maybe all of us, we need to take a step back from this passage because we've read it so many times and we've heard it so many times. But we all need to take a step back, I do anyway, and reflect and reflect again to the point where we are on our knees rejoicing in the Lord that the God of this universe washed the feet of the disciples. 
not incredible that the God of this universe stooped down and washed the feet of the disciples. You, you can go to whatever leadership conference you want and you can get a whole library of books on leadership and you can go and listen to the top speakers on Christian leadership in the world today. But everything that you need to know about leadership is right there in that passage. The Lord served the disciples. He washed their feet. And this isn't just for leadership. It's a fellowship endeavor. We are to wash one another's feet. We are to serve one another. As the Lord washed the disciples' feet, He set forward a pattern to follow, to serve each other. Not to serve just the 80%, but to serve everybody. The servant leader. The servant life. And if you think about it, if we're in that spiritual warfare, if we love one another, and if we're serving one another, again, Satan will not get a foothold. And you might say, Philip, how is that possible? How can I love everybody? How can I serve everybody? How can we as a fellowship serve one another? God will give you the grace to do it. God will give me the grace to do it. Because it's not always that easy. It's not always that easy. Easy to say, but not always easy to do. But God will give us the grace. And is grace sufficient? Well, Second Corinthians 12 reminds us, when Paul spoke of that thorn in the flesh, the Lord said to him in verse 9, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. God's grace is sufficient and God will give you the grace to love, to forgive, to serve one another. Thirdly, center your ministry, center your lives on the cross. You know, this picture of the Lord washing the feet of the disciples points us to the cross, doesn't it? You know, Jesus rose, got up from supper, a place of relative rest and comfort to go down and to wash the feet of the disciples. That points us to the Lord who left heaven's glory and came down to the sin-cursed earth. Jesus laid aside his garments and as the hymn reminds us, he laid aside his majesty and gave up everything for me. Jesus took a towel and girded himself ready to do work. And Jesus, Jesus took the form of a servant and came ready to do the will of the Father. Jesus poured water into a basin, ready to clean the, the disciples' feet. And this points us to the Lord on the cross, pouring out his blood to cover all of our sins in full at the cross at Calvary. And praise the Lord, Jesus sat down again on John 13, verse 12, pointing us to the one Jesus, the Lord, who sat down at the right hand of the Father, having completed his work on the cross. You know, as we face spiritual battles, rest in the cross. Rest in that finished work that Christ did it all for us. That God the Father was satisfied in full. There's no more sacrifices needed. What we will do in a few moments, it's a remembrance of a finished work, not a continuation of a, of a work. It's the remembrance of what the Lord accomplished on the cross at Calvary. And we are to center, or should I say, continue to center our ministry and our lives in the cross. 
Our preaching is to be continued, as I know it already is, centered in the cross. Our outreach, as I know it already is, continue to be centered in the cross. And you might say, well, we'll always do that. We'll always do that. Very easy to try and adopt worldly methods and worldly focus and to, to dilute the gospel. Very easy. Many churches have done it before. So don't presume on anything, but pray for everything. We need to pray that we'll remain faithful. Pray that the gospel will continue to be central in our ministry, in our lives. And, and, and center your life on the cross as well. And how do you do that? Well, I, I think I've maybe said this to you before, but I, I certainly said quite a lot in the pulpit. Is when, you know, when you go into work or when you go into your social circle on Monday, center your life and center your conversation on the cross. How do you do that? Because you're probably thinking, what you're saying, Philip, is come with a load of tracts and start preaching the gospel to people who you meet. Well, sure, do that if you can, and do that if you're led to, and it would be good if you did, but most of us probably won't do that, if the truth be told. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, it might not happen. But one thing we definitely could do is sprinkle our conversation with the gospel. In other words... You know, maybe when, when somebody says to you, which they probably will, what did you do in the weekend? Maybe say, I, was, I had a good time of fellowship at my church. Preacher wasn't that great, but the fellowship's good. Maybe, maybe if somebody says, what are you doing in the weekend? Maybe just sprinkle a little bit of the gospel and say, God willing, I'm hoping to. Or, or maybe say in, in your conversation later on in the week, I was praying that, or the Lord really gave me strength in that area. Just sprinkle your conversation with a little bit of spiritual language and you know and I know that people will start to talk about you and then ultimately start talking to you. And opportunities will come. But if you say nothing, then people just won't know and won't say. But if you sprinkle a little bit of the gospel in your conversation, people will inevitably talk to you and you will get those divine opportunities So center your life, center your ministry, center your conversation, center your actions in the cross. In this world of trouble, in this spiritual warfare that we face. And you know, there maybe is some here that have not yet come to the cross. Have not yet put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have not yet given their life to him. And this morning I want to urge you, don't put your hope in the things of this world. You know, before I went into ministry, before I got a call into ministry in Oma Baptist, the Lord gave me a passage, and it was 1 John 2.17, and it reads this, The world is passing away along with its desires, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. That was the theme for the last two and a half years. And the world is passing away. You can see that. It's obvious. As the phrase goes, a blind man, the galloping horse would say it. It's obvious the world is passing away. And where's the hope? Well, it's certainly not in man. It's certainly not in politicians. We pretty much can come to that conclusion in the last few months. It's certainly not in philosophies that come and go. It's not in the, 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 the schemes of man or the intellect of man. It's not in technology. It's in putting your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and giving your life to him. There you will find hope. A living hope. There you will find new life in Christ Jesus. There you will find forgiveness of sins. There you will find that hope and glory that you will one day be with him for all eternity.
And fourthly, and we're coming to a close, how do we deal with the spiritual warfare that we're facing? Be a godly example to all. Be role models, in other words. Verse 12 says this, So when he had washed their feet, taken his garments, and sat down again, he said to them, Do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. Verse 14, If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I, verse 15, have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. I've given you an example to follow. And we as God's people are to be exemplary examples. We're to be role models. And you might say, no, 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 Philip, that's, that's, that's Paul's job. That's the elders' job. They're to be the role models. We don't, we don't have that burden. It's a pastor's responsibility. It's an elder's responsibility to be the role models in the church. No. <laughs> We're all to be role models. Exemplary role models. We're all to be role models for Christ. And you know, Paul had no problem being a role model for Timothy. If you read in second, don't no need to turn to it, but if you read in second Timothy chapter three, at verse ten, Paul says this to Timothy. Now think about now think about this. Paul says this to, this to Timothy, his his spiritual son. You have carefully followed my doctrine, my manner of life, my purpose, my faith, and my long suffering, my love, and my perseverance. Persecutions and afflictions which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. You've followed me, Timothy. Paul is totally comfortable about being a role model for Timothy. You know, we kind of go, oh, don't follow me. <laughs> you, don't, you, won't, you won't find much example in my life or whatever. That's kind of humility and I get that. But we shouldn't be saying that. We should be saying what Paul is saying. We should be comfortable about others following us as we follow Christ. And people won't listen to really what you say and they probably won't pay a lot of heed to what you do. But what they will be influenced by and what they will follow is your patterns and practices. And if you're setting forth good, godly patterns and practices, and if I'm setting forth good, godly patterns and practices, then people will be influenced by that. People will follow that. In other words, if you're not going to the prayer meeting, that's a pattern and practice that some will follow, not going to the prayer meeting. If you're sort of apathetic towards the Lord's table, sometimes here, sometimes not, that people will be influenced by that. They will. You may not want them to, but they will be influenced by that. So we have to set forth to continue to set forth, by God's grace, good godly patterns and practices for others to follow, to be exemplary role models for the Lord. And finally, glorify God in all things. Verse 31. So when he had gone out, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. Verse 32. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him immediately. Little children, I shall be with you a little while longer. You will seek me, and as I said to the Jews, where I am going, you cannot come. So now I say to you. Why am I preaching this morning? Because Paul asked me? No, well, yes, but to glorify God. Why do we praise the Lord this morning? Because it feels good to sing? No, to glorify God. Why are we doing the jam club on Monday afternoon? Well, I know that one, Philip. That's for the salvation of the young people. That's secondary. The first reason for doing it is to glorify God. We do everything to glorify God. It's all about Him. And to God be the glory. And so, 
how do we deal with the spiritual warfare that we're facing? How do we deal with the troubles in this world? How do we deal with the uncertainties of life? How do we deal with it? How do we stay strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus? One, remember that the Lord loves you. And if we've lost a little of that awe, if we've lost a little of the wonder of the cross, maybe we need to get down on our knees. I certainly do anyway. And ask the Lord to give me back that wonder, that amazing just truth that God loves me and God loves you. And given that God loves us, we ought to love one another. Not in some sentimental, mushy way, but in a way that is in action. Encouraging, strengthening, instructing, sometimes even rebuking. Maybe even, at times, disciplining. Loving one another and encouraging one another. And indeed, if we doubt it, if we doubt God's love for us, turn to the cross. And there, there is no doubt. There's full assurance of salvation. There's full assurance of the love of God when you center your eyes and you focus your thoughts and heart on the cross at Calvary. And secondly, we are to wash one another's feet. We are to serve one another. The Lord did it, and we are to follow his example, serving one another. Not just some, but each other as we move forward for the glory of God. And thirdly, to center our lives in the cross. Our ministry to continue to center on the cross, as this fellowship has always done. But don't presume on anything. Pray for everything. Continue to pray that we'll be faithful, that we'll preserve the gospel, that we'll preach the gospel, that we'll never dilute the gospel. The temptation is always there to try and get more people in to dilute the gospel, to make it a little bit more digestible and acceptable. That's not how to get more people in, and that's not how to extend the kingdom. It's to be faithful to the gospel, to preach it, to proclaim it, to live it, to testify to it, to gossip it to sprinkle it in our conversations. And if we do that, we will live lives that are glorifying to God, centering Christ, centering the cross in everything that we do. Fourthly, we're to be godly examples. We're no longer to say, that's the guy who does the examples, the role modeling. We are role models. And remember, people will not pay much attention to what you say. People will pay very little heed to what you do. But what they will follow, and they will be influenced by, is your patterns and practices. Set forth good, godly patterns and practices for others to follow. And finally, glorify God in all things. It's all about Him. Your ministry, your life, evangelism, preaching, it's all for the glory of God. You know, as we finish this chapter, you know, if you didn't read any more, if you just read John chapter 13 and you hadn't read any more of the Bible and you didn't know the end of the story, you'd be pretty depressed, wouldn't you? Jesus is about to go to the cross. Satan has got into Judas. Judas is about to betray the Lord. The disciples are going to face persecution themselves. And Peter is going to deny the Lord. You'd be pretty depressed. But we don't need to be depressed because we do know the end of the story. Judas's betrayal in the mystery of providence leads to Jesus going on to the cross. What man meant for evil... God meant for good. Peter's denial, it was wrong, it was sinful. He should not have done it. But what man meant for evil, God meant for good. Because we know the end of that story. Peter was restored. Peter was forgiven. Peter was revived. And you see a different Peter in Acts chapter 1. You see a mature Peter. You see a a, a man who has, has moved forward in his journey of faith. What man meant for evil, God meant for good. 
And when the Lord went on to that cross, we know he accomplished our salvation in full. We know the end of the story. God meant it all for good. And you know, we don't know the end of the story for this church and for our lives. And sometimes it doesn't make a lot of sense. Sometimes it doesn't seem to, you know, it doesn't seem to equate. And it, it, sometimes we really struggle and we're uncertain and we don't know what's happening. And we don't know what the future is going to bring. And whatever we're going through, sometimes we even struggle with that. Why is this happening? Why is God doing this? Always remember that God knows the end of the story. And God is working all things together for good to those who love him. And God has a great plan for you and for this church. So lean on him. Trust in him. And in all things, give God the glory in it all. Amen. Our our hymn just before the table.